right, good morning and welcome. I am Stuart Redcat, I'm the pastor of Family Ministries here at Bigwood, so I spend much more time with the youth and children than up here typically. Um, I want to take a, take a brief moment, thank you band for leading us in worship, and thank, I want to thank as well, yeah. I want to thank not only the elders, but also all of you um, for the blessing of my upcoming sabbatical. Lord willing, it will be a wonderful time with family to rest, recharge, refocus, and come back for many more years of ministry. So thank you for that. On to this morning. Over the last several months since January, we've been working our way through the book of Genesis. Um, we've been examining the origins and the creation of the universe at the hands of an almighty God. How the world was made perfect. How man was placed to live within the garden by God. How God made woman to be a perfect companion for him and then brought them together in marriage. And then last week we learned how sin and death entered the world and the severe consequences from that. Yet even through this sin, even through this death, even through rebellion, there was also hope and mercy given by God of a future Savior coming. We're going to wrap up uh, chapter 3 today with an intriguing text of Scripture, verses 22 to 24. I'm going to read that passage, and we're going to come before the Lord in prayer together. Genesis 3, 22 to 24, the word of the Lord from the English Standard Version. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hands and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you that we can come together and, and worship you this morning. Thank you that we can approach you in prayer as sons and daughters before our Father. Thank you that you have given us your word that we can examine, that we can study deeply, we can think deeply upon and understand more about you. God, I pray that as we look at your word this morning that everything that we do is pleasing to you and that you would guard my lips from only speaking your truth. Help us to honor you this morning in everything that we do. In your name we pray. Amen. This passage, chapter 3, 22 to 24, is, um, uh, you could say, the crossover episode. It's the connection point between chapters 2 and 3 and the entirety of the rest of Scripture. It transitions from life in the garden, life alongside God, to the rest of scripture, life outside of the garden. So I'm just going to prepare you right now. If you're going to try to keep up with every verse we're going to be referencing, you're going to be flipping a lot. Back to ch chapters 2 and 3 as well throughout the rest of scripture. There's going to be two truths that we're going to talk about that you must remember about sin that we're going to learn from this passage. But there's also going to be a mercy from God that he gives us. And finally, we're going to trace through the entire biblical narrative from Genesis through Revelation to see a big picture on a particular biblical theme 
and how it develops through Scripture. So let's begin. The first truth about sin we can never forget is that sin will never deliver as promised. Sin will never deliver as promised. It will never live up to expectations. It will always fall short. Genesis 3, 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, if you've been paying attention over the last several weeks, you would be like, wait a second, that, that phrasing sounds really familiar. And it should. Look to the top of the page or maybe flip back one to Genesis 1, or sorry, Genesis 3, my apologies. Genesis 3, verses 1 through 5. We're going to read that briefly. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. That promise, being like God, knowing good and evil, that Eve was tempted by has come to pass in Genesis 3.22. But not in the way that Eve ever hoped that it would. Not in the way that she would ever want. You see, Eve desired, and I think mankind in her sinfulness wants to be like God. We want to know everything. We want to understand everything. Our sinfulness bucks against God's sovereignty and knowledge over us. Adam and Eve, after eating the fruit, now know good and evil, but not like God does. God is omniscient. It's a fancy theological term for God knows everything. We know this from passages like Psalm 147.5. Great is our Lord, and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. Or 1 John 3.20. God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. God knows everything. But here's the important part we have to keep in mind. Adam and Eve did come to know evil, but not like God does. God knows good and evil by wisdom. Adam and Eve come to know good and evil by experience and exposure. Let's unpack that a bit. Uh, We want our children, for example, to grow in knowledge of of good and bad, but not by the experience of it. Uh, My son is two. He loves to help me in the kitchen. I don't know why, but he always wants to help me in the kitchen. So if I'm prepping food or I'm cooking like eggs in the stove, he wants to help me. I want him to grow in the knowledge of knowing how to cook for himself. I want him to grow in the knowledge that the stove is hot. Do not touch it. I want him to grow in that wisdom. But I don't want him to grow in that knowledge by touching it and burning himself. Uh, Another example, we want our teens to grow in wisdom that there are evil people in the world who will take advantage of them. We don't want them to grow in that knowledge by experiencing abuse and more for themselves. God knows good and evil by wisdom, by who he is. Adam and Eve now know good and evil by experience, by exposure. 
They were made good by God, but they have become infected by evil through sinful actions. They now live in evil, live in rebellion, live in spiritual death. Their knowledge of evil is painful and corrupting, unlike God's knowledge. Sin doesn't deliver as promised. Adam and Eve wanted to be like God. They thought through disobeying they could get that. But what was promised was not what was delivered. They got different results. It didn't come through as they hoped, and sin has not changed since then. Sin may promise money, happiness, fulfillment, and more, but it's never going to come through. Drug or alcohol abuse is not going to bring lasting satisfaction. Disobeying your parents is not going to bring that freedom you desire. Seeking fulfillment or seeking purpose for our lives outside of God is never going to satisfy us. Sin will never deliver as promised. The second thing we must always remember about sin is that sin distorts who we are and what we were to be. We were supposed to be creatures made in the image of God, creatures made to honor God, to glorify God, to seek holiness like God. But sin distorted that. Let's look back at Genesis 2.15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. The word used for keep is actually a Hebrew word, samar. It's a very common Hebrew word. And it's translated as to watch, to protect, to keep, to watch over, to guard. Shepherds were to samar, to watch over their flocks. Priests and Levites were to samar, to keep watch over the tabernacle and later temple. Guardsmen or watchmen are to samar, to keep watch over and guard their charges. Now, keep that in mind. Adam was to samar, to guard, to protect, to keep watch over the garden and its inhabitants in Genesis 2.15. Jumping to Genesis 3.24 our text today. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim, and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. God sent another being to guard Samar the way back to the garden. And I think we need to pause on this for a second. The garden and its inhabitants were to be guarded by Adam. Adam was to be the guardian of the garden and its inhabitants. But due to sin, the garden had to be eventually guarded from Adam. Sin distorts and twists who we are made to be by God. In this case, the protector has become the intruder. The child of God has become the enemy of God. Sin twists. It disrupts. It distorts and it corrupts. Does this continue today without a doubt in a heartbreaking fashion? Um, at the hospital that my wife and I went to have our first child, we were required to watch a, a series of uh, patient educational videos of, okay, here, here's what you do with your newborn when you go home. Um, they were largely on the basics of child care. I don't remember most of them at this point. 
Um, I mean, you watch a couple videos and you're waiting for your child, you're, you're not paying that much attention. But there's one video I can't forget. We had to watch a video on shaken baby syndrome. If you don't know what that is, it's a medical name given to a collection of serious physical and mental effects, including death, that can happen when a young child is shaken, often in anger. Baby's crying for hours at a time when they're young and they can't be calmed and the caregiver gets frustrated. The information that got permanently seared in my memory, though, was this. Approximately 70% of kids who are shaken, who are assaulted and sometimes killed, is not by strangers. 70% of them are attacked by their fathers, their father figures. The man who is supposed to protect them, to care for them, to defend them, to hold them and comfort them, to be their father and to be their dad, is the one most likely statistically to severely harm their child in anger this way. Sin distorts and twists the father from, again, the protector to the transgressor. Let's be clear, though. This isn't limited just to men. Women are just as sinful as men are. Women are called to be helpers of and encouragers of their husband, yet often tear them down and neglect them. Children are called to be obedient and respectful of their parents, yet in sinfulness often disobey and disrespect them to their own detriment. Singles, retirees, men, women, more, we are all called to support, to care for, to love one another within the church. Yet how often have we failed to do that and hurt one another at times? We were made to be children of a holy God, yet we are wretched and foolish creatures who have allowed sin to twist us. Whether out of sinful desire or trying to be fashion ourselves to be our own gods for our own desires. Sin distorts and twists who we were made to be into ugly things. Sin will never help you grow or mature. Sin will never bring about peace or goodness in your life. It only twists, perverts, and disfigures. Rather than being holy creatures, creatures made to worship and honor God in our thoughts, words, and deeds, we have become twisted and evil, dishonoring God and harming one another. Sin distorts who we are. Now, as I mentioned earlier, there is mercy given by God still, even in the midst of sin. God restrains mankind's evil and its consequences. Looking at verses 22 to 23. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. Even in the midst of judgment, God is good. And that is worth saying again. Even in the midst of judgment, God is good. God knows because Adam and Eve have taken from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they now live a sinful and cursed existence. As noted by John MacArthur, they've also just witnessed death a moment before. When an animal is killed for its skin to cover their nakedness, they have just witnessed physical death for the first time, and I would imagine that they were terrified. 
And in that terror and sinful state, they might have eaten then from the tree of life and therefore lived in sin forever, attempting to escape the consequences of physical death they have just witnessed. Now, I don't mean to hammer on Adam and Eve. I think it's understandable. I think any of us would have been tempted to that in the moment. But imagine for a second. Why would this be so bad? Imagine for a second. We live in a world where there is eternal, continued, sinful existence. A world where we and everyone who has ever lived, and there's been a lot of excessively evil individuals in the world, continue in their sinful and cursed existence forever without death. Imagine what a world that would be. Far more significantly, however, imagine eternal existence in sin, separated from God forever and ever, never having the opportunity to reconnect with him. These are the fates that God, in his mercy and love, guards Adam and Eve from when he sends them out of the garden. Even in his judgment, there is mercy, there is love for mankind. Now let's examine the final verse in greater detail. As I said before, we're, we're going to be doing a bit of uh, biblical theology this morning. We're going to be looking at a biblical theme in this verse and tracing how it develops through the rest of Scripture. Because Scripture is not meant to be read once. It's not, okay, I got to the end of the book, I finished Lord of the Rings, I can finally put it on the shelf. Say I got through it. That's not the purpose of Scripture. Rather, we're, we're to reread it. Consider it. Meditate. In other words, think deeply upon it as we read it again and again in our lifetime, ever mining deeper and deeper into God's word. The biblical theme that we're going to be tracing through the entirety of scripture is God's presence. Back to the text. Verse 24. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim, and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So after they're driven out, a cherubim is placed to the east. Now, this detail of it being to the east is significant. A, a, a quick note, in Hebrew literature, as well as especially the Bible, details are not overwhelmingly present. You, you don't have tons of details, typically, as you read through. So as an example, think through if you have a favorite book. Like, I have Lord of the Rings. I'm a geek. I love Lord of the Rings. If you think through your favorite book, you can probably like, conjure up a description in your mind of exactly what the main character looks like. You can think of what the main character looks like, what their home looks like, and more. Like, there's lots of details describing these things. Now, compare that to the Bible, which is dramatically different. Descriptions are very rare, and when we do have them, they generally have some degree of significance. So, case in point, King Saul. King Saul is described as a man being head and shoulders above everyone else and being handsome. He looks the part of a good leader. You walk into a room and there's one guy that's like a foot and a half tall, everyone else, and good looking. Man, he probably should be in charge. Even though King Saul looked like a leader, he also lacked the heart to be a good leader. That description of King Saul shows us important facets of the story. So, Details are important. Let's go back to the text. The guard is on the east side, and we can assume that Adam and Eve were sent to the east. Going to the east in the Old Testament is often associated 
with a sending from or withdrawing from God's presence. Here's a quick tour. Genesis 4.16, this is after he killed his brother. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. The population of Babel had come from the east, Genesis 11. Lot separates from Abraham and travels east, away from God's chosen man, Genesis 13. Abraham sends his son of Keturah eastward, away from Isaac. Enemies of Israel are often called sons of the east, Judges 6. And finally, the main enemies of Israel and Judah were often from the east, and Judah was taken to the east, away from the land promised by God. And if you think I'm taking this too symbolically, let's just look at the concept within the narrative. Adam and Eve are being sent out of the Garden of Eden, a special location made for his people, where God walked with them in Genesis 3.8. They are being sent out of God's presence. Without a doubt, they're being sent out, cast out, booted out, kicked out of the presence of God. They are now east of Eden. But that does not mean that God is done with mankind. It does not mean that God would give up on his people. Which brings us to the next detail we must consider, the guardian. Cherubim are a type of angel. They are significant in that they are always described as being in the glory and the presence of God. You could say that they are the guardians of the entrance to coming into the Lord's presence. 2 Samuel 22, 2 Kings 19, Ezekiel 10, Psalm 80, Psalm 99, all describe cherubim in or around the Lord. If you do a quick Google search on cherubim, Bible verses, etc., you're going to come up actually with the most descriptions, images and statues of them, being made as a constant presence in the construction of the tabernacle and the later temple the place where the nation of Israel came to worship God. Cherubim are even placed upon the Ark of the Covenant, the most sacred object for God's people in Old Testament times. Israelites in the Old Testament recognized that when they came to the tabernacle, or they came to the later constructed temple, they were entering into a space right up to the very edge of the presence of God. They were, in a sense, returning to the Garden of Eden, though with the cherubim there, reminding them of their still separation from God. The cherubim reminded them of their separation from God. Which brings to mind a question. Why are cherubim largely absent in all the New Testament? Why do we not have pictures or statues of cherubim in our lobby way as we come through. I'm sure Craig Brady could make a wonderful statue for us if we ask. Why do we not have one? That is because we no longer have that division between us and God. That a guard is needed to mark the boundary. Because God has come to us through his son. John 1, 1-5, 9-14. to In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. 
The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That word is Jesus. No longer do we have any need to have a guard between God's presence and us. Because God has come to us through his Son. No longer do we need any intermediaries. No longer do we need cherubim or priests. No longer is there a need for veils or curtains between God and man. Because that divide has been torn down by Christ's coming through his life, death, and resurrection that we get to celebrate next weekend. The significance of these cannot be overstated. Adam and Eve once walked in the garden with God. But they are thrown out of Eden, thrown out of God's presence. Cherubim were placed to mark the boundaries, preventing man from ever entering again. But instead of us walking back into the garden, Christ walked east to us. And Christ changed everything. Because of his life, death, and resurrection, everything changed. We may no longer walk in the garden. Rather, we get a chance to walk straight to God's throne in prayer as his children. Hebrews 4.16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We don't need to wait outside in the garden. We have access to the throne room. We may live in the land east of Eden right now, but if we have trusted in and have faith in Christ as our Lord and Savior, we will live not in the garden, but in the city of God back within God's presence. Revelation 21, 22 to 22, 5. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing ever unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does anything that is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the midi, middle of the city of the city, street of the city, forgive me. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruits yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be on it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more, and there will be no need of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. We've learned how Sin distorts us, how we can't trust sin's promises, and how God has mercy through sin. 
how Adam and Eve lived in God's presence until they were cast out due to their sin, sent out east of Eden. Cherubim, guardians, were placed to mark that division between sinful mankind and entering into God's presence. In the Old Testament, the tabernacle, the temple, served as a meeting place. Yet, that ever-present reminder of the division. When Christ came, that division is broken. The curtain is torn down. God has come to us, and guards are no longer needed. And if we trust in Christ, we will live in the garden remade as an eternal city, within the presence of God again. Until we come to that city, until Christ comes to judge and remake the world, we do live east of Eden, in a world that is twisted, perverted, and distorted by sin. Yet we are not without hope. Our hope was never to be and should never be placed in this world. God has come to this earth because we could not go to him. We are no longer cast out of his presence. We are merely awaiting our return to it. Praise God for that, and pray that Christ returns swiftly. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you that even though we have all, not just Adam and Eve, but each of us have sinned grievously, that we are sinful, distorted, perverted, and unclean people, that God, you still sent your son to this earth, that your son still came to us to live a perfect life, die in our place on the cross, and be resurrected again. God, thank you that you have torn down that divide between us and you, that we can always come straight to you as sons and daughters before our Father. And God, I, I pray that your son returns soon, that he would come and remake this world and make things right, Because your son is desperately needed, and we can't do it without you. Only you, God, can set things right. So we wait for you and pray for you to return swiftly. In your name we pray. Amen.